This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Welcome back, colleagues, um, to this third and final session. <coughs> Excuse me. On the topic of money, um, we obviously um, this bill, as you can see, well, you, from the from the paperwork, is achieving bold EU national and energy uh, energy and climate plans through inclusiveness and sustainable finance. But the heart of this agenda is how do we find the money, um, and also how do we align that to a plan? So this this conversation, we have really interesting uh, set of speakers, just like the other panels. But on this one, we have a you know we have the money makers, we have the private sector, a regulator, and a national government in the mix. So we have a nice, interesting mix, but also an independentist looking at what the plans are saying um, so far um, from the kind of uh, ecological, ecological institute. Um, from Matthias, we will we'll come to him in a moment. What I'm going to start off with is, is ask um, Andrew McDowell, who is the, uh, one of the vice presidents at the European Investment Bank. Um, there's been much talk about what you're up to uh, in terms of greening the bank. So tell us, what's it, what, is it gonna, what, 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 is, what does it mean to become the first EU green bank, or one of the first green banks in the world? Well, thank you very much. <clears throat> thank you for the invitation to be here today. Um, when, when you said the money makers were here on the panel, I, I'm not sure if you were referring to the EIB. We don't make that much money. <laughs> I wasn't meaning about in terms of personal personal wealth in any way. It's about making money out there. We, in fact, whatever we make, we pass back into the project. Indeed, indeed. That's our purpose. But yes, there has been a lot of discussion about us putting the climate really at the centre of our strategy and positioning ourselves as the EU climate bank. In fact, you know, we've been doing climate for many years. You know, we probably the the biggest financier of renewable energy in Europe uh, over, the, over the last 15 years. But it is true, we are reflecting on what it would mean for the strategy of the bank, really to put climate at the center of everything we do. Uh, and I see five or six implications of that. I mean, firstly, it is going to mean that the bank is going to commit to a much bigger target in terms of its own volumes that it finances on its balance sheet for, for climate mitigation, for climate adaptation, and indeed for the other four environmental objectives that are set out under the EU Sustainable Finance Taxonomy. So what we're looking at at the moment is, is doubling the target for the percentage of our overall volumes, about 70 billion a year, that we earmark for climate and other environmental objectives. And on the basis of that target, so moving from 25% to 50% by 2025, and if we stay there for you know, the rest of the decade, we believe we can mobilize about a trillion euro of, of financing for, for climate and environment with that type of target. Now, the second implication is that is going to mean we need to mobilize the private sector. So that type of over trillion euro target for the bank assumes a mobilization that for every one euro we put into a project, we mobilize another three euro from the private sector. Okay. That does mean we need to reflect on our own strategy, our instruments. We need to, take, we need to have the risk appetite to help de-risk projects for the four institutional investors in the private sector. I mean, there's a lot, as we all know, there's a lot of institutional liquidity out there. There isn't an awful lot of risk appetite out there. And that's where we need to help the private sector uh, grow more comfortable with the type of risks involved, not just with renewable energy, but many different types of climate action projects, including transport and so on. We need to take more equity risk. We need to take more junior debt risk. 
We also need to provide more resources into project preparation, financial structuring and technical advice. And clearly we're also going to need to work closely with the Commission and other stakeholders in the development of this um, sustainable finance taxonomy, uh, which is very important obviously for, for institutional investors. I think the, uh, the third question we face is, is there going to be enough projects to finance out there? I mean, you know, a trillion euro is a lot of money and we need to find ways, you know, we, we, we can't just be displacing the private sector. We need to be adding value. And I think that depends on policy. I mean, it is, it is going to be, uh, require very strong policies to generate that type of pipeline of projects. Obviously, we see a need for, for more regulation and carbon pricing to try and generate that type of pipeline. More regulation in areas like building standards. The auto sector is going to be very critical. What, what will be the future of the internal combustion engine? Uh, that will generate in itself a huge uh, investment pipeline to, to replace the whole infrastructure around the ICE. Obviously, energy, energy market regulation is also crucial. Carbon pricing is also fundamental, though, to generating a pipeline of projects. We've already seen, since the, the ETS was reformed, the emissions trading system, and the carbon price has gone from 8 euro a ton to 30 euro a ton, approximately. We've already seen a much bigger pipeline of renewable energy projects for the bank in particular. So broadening the ETS to new sectors and also making it credible that, that the price is not going to collapse again is really important uh, for, for investors. Uh, three other, two other quick issues, Paris alignment. We can't just make a, a commitment that on one half of our financing is going to be very, for very good things and the other half of our financing you know, can, can go into anything, including fossil fuels. <clears throat> so we have to commit that all of our financing will be uh, consistent with the Paris Agreement. And that's why we've made a proposal to our board of directors that we end our relationship with financing the fossil fuel sector, including the gas sector. This is a very difficult discussion we're having with the member states right now, with our shareholders, uh, but I'm confident we'll produce a reasonably good outcome to that discussion, uh, possibly at our board meeting next week. And finally, I see I have 13 seconds, two other very quick issues we need to be conscious of. The just transition, uh, obviously to maintain political support for the energy transition, we need to keep everybody on board. We intend to fully support and help leverage the Commission's Just Transition Fund and Just Transition Strategy, so to blend EIB financing with whatever grant aid is available under the Just Transition Fund. And the final issue is we need to be conscious of the geopolitics of this for Europe. Uh, we need to be aware that this has big geopolitical implications, the energy transition, across two dimensions. First of all, we cannot simply replace our fossil fuel dependency on non-EU fossil fuel imports with a new dependency in terms of the critical raw materials required for, for the clean energy technologies, in particular the rare earth materials such as, such as uh, lithium uh, and so on. Um, so we need to support the investments in Europe to protect the independence of supply chains needed for, for clean energy technologies in Europe, and that's something we intend to do. The second thing is in development finance. We need to bring our partner countries with us on this journey. Mm. There's a real danger if we decide to stop financing gas and coal and so on, that the other, other Chinese, the Russians and so on, will just step in and, 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 and replace our financing with financing with lower environmental labor procurement standards and so on. We recognize we need to make a better offer when it comes to renewable energy financing outside of Europe. And that's something we'd like to work with the European Commission and the member states on in the coming years. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um,
I won't ask you how hopeful you are of the positive outcome next week, because that would be really naughty of me. But what are you looking for from the European Commission in terms of policy? Well, um, I mean, sorry, I mean, I think obviously we're building now on the, on the clean energy for all European package, uh, you know, that, that has already been signed off. I suppose what we're, I mean, the question I think we're all waiting for, is that package going to be reopened now mm. by, the, by the new commission? Are the targets that have been set for renewable energy, for energy efficiency and indeed greenhouse gas reductions, are they now going to be reopened and more ambitious targets set for 2030? I mean, I think that is... I mean, you know, we, we, we don't like in public to take a strong view on these things, but, but obviously... I know, but that's why I asked you, a deliberately. St a, strong, a stronger policy would generate more projects for us to, find, to finance. I did mention, obviously, the auto sector in particular. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, mean, I think the question facing Europe is, 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 are we going to continue to support the internal combustion engine for, for another 10, 20 years, or are we going to accelerate uh, the move towards other technologies? That isn't, that is a matter ultimately for regulation. I mean, I mean, I don't think this will ever be solved just through price signals and so on. And no, indeed not. Uh, so that's a key question. And obviously that generates a whole investment pipeline for the bank. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like taking the fear out of the system that if you're going to, you know, ban or regulate on the engine, that actually if there's a positive opportunity through alternatives and as well as job growth and economic growth, it's always just seen as a high risk um, stake uh, approach for p politicians, but yeah, they're not thinking through that you could spin it in so many different, not spin it since it's cosmetic, you can actually, uh, with, with justification, say there's an opportunity there for economic growth, for sure. Um, I'm going to turn to, on the, on the matter of policy and plans, Matthias, you've, you're from the, um, head, you're, you're head of the climate uh, at the Ecological Ecologic Institute, um, I keep on getting my, my tongue twisted on it, uh, for some reason, but you've looked at all the plans. Okay, um, what's, your, what's your take on the level of ambition that we might see when they're submitted? Because money needs a plan or needs a policy as well. Right, thank you very much, uh, Damendra, and thank you so much for inviting me to join this event today. So, indeed, um, a team from, of researchers from Ecologic Institute together with partners from Klimakt, a Belgian uh, environmental consultancy financed uh, by the European Climate Foundation, had the chance to analyze the 28 draft plans that were submitted at uh, the end of last year slash beginning of this year. And we published uh, a report that um, have like one of the three remaining copies of uh, here. And uh, we devised our own methodology in um, analyzing the plans and um, actually ended up with uh, individual scores for countries as well. So there are country sheets in here as well. If you want to go and look where your uh, respective home country ended up, you can do that. But I, I should maybe start by explaining a little bit about um, you know, the importance of the NECPs and, and what they are about. Um, because they are essentially, um, you know, they are a new vehicle for planning future energy and climate policy. We didn't have an integrated document in which member states would previously be um, organizing, planning, and then communicating what they were going to do over the next 10 years. We had national rene renewable energy action plans, we had energy efficiency action plans. So, you know, this new uh, set of plans required that um, member states invested in coordinating between different departments, different ministries, trying to get more coherence in their data, in their underlying approaches, and also in their policy. 
And so, you know, that requires quite a bit of upfront um, investment on the parts of governments, but really uh, promises quite a bit of extra added value in the long run and also lower administrative burden going forward because you have it all integrated in one place. What, what's meant to be in these plans, and our work was um, facilitated by the fact that there, the legislation actually says they have to be in a standard format. There is a template that's mandatory for all countries to use. So they need to include targets, uh, which are um, on energy, on, on renewables, efficiency, and climate, that indicate what ma member states are going to contribute to the EU's 2030 targets, but they are also, of course, a statement of how their energy system and, and other parts of the economy are expected to be developing until 2030. They then need to indeed underline that with policies. So these are not just statements about this is where we want to be going, but they also have to say, how are we getting there? And uh, there should also be analysis on uh, the, the impact that these policies are meant to be generating. So not just a list of, these are our general plans, but also we have analyzed what, how many emissions reductions are we getting from measure A and from measure B, et cetera. And, and that's all really crucial um, uh, to have also a vehicle with which you can engage your national stakeholders. So these plans and the planning exercise are an opportunity to engage, get intel and info from um, key constituencies, but also create some political buy-in. And, and that should, you know, on the one hand, create for all of the actors involved in the implementation policy certainty. And so that everybody knows you know, where the, um, the, the journey is going. And it should also, in a way, th um, these plans should function almost like investment brochures, if you will. You know, th there should be information on investment needs to implement these policies. So you know, that, in, uh, alongside information on public financing available, should create um, a good sense of you know, what's actually supposedly coming down the pipeline in terms of projects uh, and policies. And what's really important is that at the same time as these 2030 plans, member states are also developing long-term climate strategies for 2050. And so here's one of the, the key um, points for, for uh, you know, future implementation. We are at a point where we're looking, discussing climate neutrality as a new long-term target for the EU. So our policy and our targets that are being decided in these plans, for example, have to be part of the journey towards 2050 in climate neutrality. So they need to be part of the start of a journey towards a transformation. And so you can obviously get things wrong if you're just looking a few years ahead compared to looking 30 years ahead. Our assessment, um, what we did was uh, develop our own methodology for looking at three key elements. The adequacy of the targets being set, the level of detail and some specifics on the policies that were included and the impacts and then the quality of the process. And uh, you know, we had got up to 100% in terms of potential score and the best um, scores that member states got in that assessment were in the 40 to 60% range, so a category C out of A, B, C, D, E. And, and that goes to show that you know, compared to our methodology, Essentially, all plans are clearly in need of improvement, um, but there are uh, positive examples and best practice cases in a number of them. So as we're, we're looking forward, we then need improvement um, at the member state level for the final plans to be submitted later this year on raising the ambition of their targets. 
Uh, and a number of member states, for example, on the climate targets, they already put in higher figures than they were required under existing EU legislation, such as Sweden and Spain and, and Luxembourg. And, you know, I would uh, expect that potentially, you know, Finland might join them with their, their new policy goals um, that are more ambitious than previous ones. And, uh, but that's not just required for looking at 2050, but also the Commission's assessment of these plans showed that if you're taking the sum of all of the actions that uh, member states are promising, we are not going to meet the EU's renewable energy target, and there was a specific gap for the energy efficiency target. So those numbers need to be going up. And then detail on policy also clearly needs to be improved. Um, to be credible, these plans need to have explicit details on how targets are going to be achieved. And uh, then also we found real deficiencies in terms of the, the process quality, the way that member states were involving stakeholders. So uh, since the beginning of this year, they've had hopefully a lot more time to really consult with key constituencies to involve citizens so that also when these plans are adopted and they start the process of implementing policies, that there is support for them. Um, I, I have a lot more material, but I'm, I better stop here and, and in, engage. In, indeed, thank you for that. So what you're saying, the, the top line is that the majority of the EU member states are underachieving and are barely passing the test based on your assessment. Um, and you've got literally less than 10% that are doing well, if you like. And I'm not sure if they're A's, the ones that you referred to. Um, C. Right, so... Exactly. So we've got an underachieving member state grouping um, um, thoroughly on this, yet the urgency is rife and actually, as we've heard from previous sessions, citizens actually want this. Uh, and, you know, people are saying, you know, when we've surveyed them and others, that clearly climate change is a top a number one priority. And I'm not sure how we reconcile that, because is that, is that just a matter of politics? Because one of the things that, uh, that occurred to me is that were these plans um, subject to community consultation? Were, were, were member states required to consult citizens on them? Yes, sadly, the, the provisions in the governance regulation on public participation, they were a little muddled, as, especially... Oh, surprise, these, surprise. Mm. Well, yes, um, you know, I'll, I'll grant you that. But uh, especially, I think, one of the reasons is this is to be on the excusing side of the argument first. These plans had to be developed in a relatively short span of time. As I said in the beginning, you know, they require that, that member states essentially rewire some of their internal administrative um, procedures. They, some of them also don't have the necessary analytical capacity um, at hand, which is why the European Commission actually tried to support uh, some of them uh, on that matter. Um, and so it's also the very first time that they had to do these types of plans. So on the excusing side, you can say, and these were drafts. But at the same time, of course, you know, the commission was meant to analyze them, and if the drafts are incomplete, only halfway done, then you cannot really judge whether they amount to something that's a credible policy statement going forward. So what I would see um, uh, is necessary going forward, also after the submission date, is that there is a clear follow-up process to see whether member states in their final plans have done significantly better. So the Commission, which doesn't really have a strong mandate to again in 2020 um, issue like a verdict on the plans, I think they, there should be scrutiny and a check on whether now um, targets and policies, but also the public participation has been improved. Because for final plans, 
public participation was mandatory. On the draft plans, it was more ah, optional. Okay, all right, that's good to know. So, and have you done your own scorecard in your report? Could people go to and see actually um, who's the bottom C and the top C? Yes, they're all under you, you can. My home country, Germany, came third last. Um, but another example being, you know, the... the well, I mean, politically, um, Germany unfortunately took um, a, a very um, ominous turn by supporting the East in not reducing the ambitious targets in the first place, which is more a reflection of the politics back home, unfortunately. Yes, but if I may add, it's also an example of where, you know, policy and, and um, you know, government thinking can change in the span of just a couple of months. Germany mm. did not support climate neutrality as a new EU goal at the CBU summit, and, if, you know, essentially a few weeks later at the June Council, they, they started coming around. And, and we now have, uh, with a new government package that at least has more specifics on policies, etc., so I expect that the, the final plan will look a lot more complete than the draft did. Mm. I mean, I think it will be quite interesting that, that to make, I think the public dimension of this is really important. And it'll be really, I think it'll be really important to um, enable people across um, Europe to see how governments are actually shaping up uh, on this, because that will create a, a level of engagement, but also debate and perhaps the, the um, momentum uh, for politicians to actually do the right thing. Um, before I bring in a member state, and that's Lena, thank you for being here for Finland. Any reactions to what you've heard so far? Right, gentlemen here at the front. It's making its way to you. Please do introduce yourself. Thank you. I'm Adel Gamal, <coughs> uh, Secretary General of the uh, European Energy Research uh, Alliance. Uh, thank you very much for your, um, your uh, reference to the report. I would just like to know, um, as a sign of the, uh, I would say, the, the level of thought that went into this draft report, uh, what was the level of relationship or consistency between uh, the strategies uh, in the different plans, from the countries on different plans, and the strategies in terms of research and innovation? So I, I think you're pointing to a, a key uh, element that you know these are new plans um, and they need to be coherent with existing government programs or all government programs need uh, to change. Unfortunately, um, you know our uh, we had some limitations in terms of the aspects that we could look at and we only consulted the plans as they were presented and and you know we would have had to look at. Uh, per country existing strategies and then do a comparison to to have evaluated that dimension which we could not thank you ah lady there at the back <coughs> the glasses hello uh, good morning i'm aurelie far i work for think tanks here in brussels a question to the european investment bank uh, i would like to understand a little bit how uh, the balance will be striked between the uh, criteria, the landing criteria, and the need also to, as you said, you need to have projects. So where is the balance between strengthening the climate landing criteria and also making sure that there are available projects either for refurbishment or for expansion? Thank, Thank you. you. Do you want to go for that? Um, it's a, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, we, 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 you know, the, the, more, the, the more stringent our criteria, um, you know, sometimes the more difficult it is for promoters to work with us. 
uh, and this is a constant issue that we face. Um, but it is part of the DNA of the bank, is that, I mean, basically our business model is to pass on cheap financing costs on the basis of the fact that we're a public, you know, a AAA rated public finance institution backed by the member states of the European Union. We can borrow very cheaply. And to pass those financing costs on to promoters, but only where they meet certain standards. And to push promoters into meeting higher and higher standards, whether they be environmental, labor, social, and so on and the quality of the projects. That's the whole philosophy, is that they get the benefit of our cheap financing, but the project has to, has to be pushed hard in terms of the quality of the project. Um, just delinquent regulation is, is, is very important. I'll just give you an example. So we didn't do very much energy efficiency financing up till about seven, eight years ago. Um, and, and then the, the, the uh, uh, Energy Performance of Buildings Directive uh, came into place, which obviously set this new near-zero energy standard, member state by member state, for a new building construction. Uh, as well as the requirements for retrofit, when a, when, when a deep retrofit is taking place for a building, what the minimum energy efficiency improvements have to be. And, and over that period of time, over the period of about four years, we quadrupled our energy efficiency lending from about a billion a year to about four billion a year, primarily driven by that directive. So this is where this link between our lending and policy, you know, is, is a very clear illustration. And our question now is, what's, what, what's next beyond the near-zero energy building standard? Mm. That's now the minimum regulatory standard for new buildings, for public buildings, and for private buildings next year. Um, but, but already, you know, architects are going beyond that, and they're thinking, okay, it's not just about the operating performance of buildings, it's about the lifetime performance of buildings, in terms of, is a building carbon neutral on a lifetime basis, when you take into account the inputs and the recycling of the materials? And that's the next, so, so you know, what we now need is a new standard against which to, uh, to condition promoters in order to access EIB financing. That's just in the energy efficiency area. Um, but that's the type of stronger policy and stronger regulation that we're looking for. Mm. Thank you for that. I'm going to move to Finland. Lina, um, Director General at the Finnish Ministry of Environment. <clears throat> We've just had this uh, um, depressing assessment of the plans up to this point. <clears throat> but Finland, um, I believe, has, you know, stands out a bit more than the others. Um, <clears throat> but what, do you, what, do you, what are the drivers and obstacles for Finland to achieve some of its relatively bold, ambitious plans on this agenda. Thank you, and, and regards from the very northern member states. So Helsinki got its first snow, I mean, uh, last night. So, so the climate is rather different there, and that is perhaps one, as, uh, one aspect that is influencing also our, our let's say, policies. Um, we are an example, I think, of a member state who is indeed is going through a rapid change or acceleration of the policies. And this, this is actually putting us under quite a challenge. So the original National Energy uh, and Climate Plan was, of course, submitted under the previous, the draft, under the previous government. Um, and the, the, the then um, relevant uh, scenarios and targets. And then on 6th uh, June only, we got then the new government program approved. And the government program of Antirinne, Prime Minister, is very ambitious on climate. So we want to become um, carbon neutral, climate neutral, by 2035. So quite much 
more ambitious than what was the, the target before. And also continues and the carbon negative soon after that. So clearly we, we, we want to ensure that also uh, that the EU is, is getting to the carbon neutrality by 2050. All in all, the, the, the whole government program is, is enormously ambitious and we have a hard, very much difficulties now to, to match it with the, with, the, with the plan that we need to submit for Christmas to the Commission. And I have to disappoint the audience that it will not reflect um, the current government ambition. The time is simply too short to, to give all the reliable scenarios and plans and actions uh, that need to be, need to be uh, achieved. So it will be a something half halfway. We will mention the government program and the new targets, but it will not uh, reflect that totally. But I mean, you asked about the, the, the drivers and, 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 and uh, obstacles then. I think the wide support in the society, really that the, the, the civil society, the voters, they are really strongly for strong climate action. Um, and there's a traditionally a, a high trust in, in government, in officials, uh, in science. Um, Finns are rather well educated, so I think all this helps in, in really seeing that now we need to move, we need to have a radical change. Um, Finns is also the business opportunities. Um, I think they see the opportunity of being a front runner. Um, circular economy was mentioned in the previous panel. Um, Finns have already been advocating the, the that as, as really we want to be the front runner in, in, in the circular economy and we see a lot of potential how that can really also help us in becoming carbon neutral. Um, and of course also for the, for, the, for the government, for the country itself, for its branding. Yes, we see that even in a small country, uh, high in the north, up, up in the north, can show I mean, leadership and have a, even, a, even a global influence uh, by, being, by being the first, being the brave. And also really important is that all the actors, that we need all action at all levels, in all sectors, um, everybody from citizens to schools, to, to, to research and innovation, to, to the industry, energy sector, and they have already been mobilized. Um, they have not been necessarily mobilized by the government program, but they have already been uh, taking action and they are basically all working on their own roadmaps and plans, what they want to do on their sector or in their Constituency mentioned church, for example. So they think how to become carbon neutral. Cities and regions absolutely critical for the for this uh, this action. But then there are obstacles, mm. and luckily I have only one minute left okay. <laughs> because I don't want to focus on the obstacles. That's right. Um, the unprecedented size of the challenge, the leap that we need to make now in 15 years, not in 30 years, um, is huge. And I think also the government and the ministries are only now starting to, to see what, it, what is at stake. Um, so it really requires a systemic change and at many levels. Um, and of course, second, the, the scale of investment. So coming back to the topic that you, you wanted to talk, the money, um, energy sector, the transformation that we need to have there, or the, or the transport system. I mean, it's, it's quite, um, quite daunting figures, at least from the government perspective especially when the government necessarily the economic situation is not necessarily getting getting much better in the in the coming years and the third perhaps is that really these decisions that now remain to be taken we have the targets fine but now all the implementing decisions the hard things the hard hard reforms like on green taxation or or cutting the harmful subsidies 
they are yet to be taken. And of course, for the politicians, uh, it ain't going to be easy. Um, we have also our own fossil fuel, the, the peat. We still have it um, being combusted for, for energy production and, and heat production. And that needs to be phased out. But it is a very, very painful point for, for some of the parties and citizens. And of course, all these changes has to happen in a fair and just manner, regionally and geographically and socially uh, fair way. So yes, um, we have some, some work to do. Indeed, Bef I mean, before you went on to the challenges, I thought to myself, we should all move, we should all move to Finland. Yeah, you, you painted such a fantastic picture, um, despite the only cold thing, the issue would be the cold. Um, but <clears throat> um, I wonder, in the plans that you're submitting, are you going to reorganize how government works in order to deliver this? There is I can't tell you why, because if you continue to function as you always have, it's, the question in my mind is that if you're going to have more ambitious targets, don't you need to reorganize government to be able to deliver it better? Uh -huh. Well, I think one asset is that we already have is that our, our government, we have a small country, we have a small ministries, and there is a strong tradition of working already together, coordinating strongly. We basically, all our EU positions have always been coordinated pretty well between the ministries. It's not always the case, by the way, in the member mm. states. Mm. And of well, course, yeah, now exactly, the, the yeah. climate, climate policy being su such a cross-cutting, cross wide, important, I think all the ministries basically really also, even, even the defense and others, they, they have really taken it. Uh, and we have a system already, and actually also established in our current Climate Act, that will need to be um, now re I mean, um, uh, reformed because of the new targets, uh, already set to governance, governance model. So we have different ministries in lead on different aspects, like um, the Ministry of the Economic Affairs and uh, Employment is actually in lead of the preparing the NECPs and energy issues. They, of course, they, they take care of that. But we do it in coordination, in good coordination. And there's also a ministerial working group now, led by the, the, by the Minister of um, Environment and Climate, in strong coordination. And there's also the party, party, let's say, we have to ensure that there's also all the parties, five parties in the coalition government sure. are, are mm. together. Thank you for that, uh, because it just occurs to me that when the, the challenge and the, and the step is so high, and uh, it, especially when our, our sense is that the, the, the actual targets, or rather the, um, the scientists' assessment of, I think, timescales are, are, are likely to be revised, but wait and see what, what, what the next report says from the IPCC and others, but there's a sense that the, it's a moving feast now, it's faster. Temperatures, uh, especially from this year, you could see that things are shifting much, much, much faster than we, need, uh, than we expected, but also all the scientists said that we had a window of opportunity of four years or five years. We've already eaten into nearly two and a half years of that. So unless you uh, hunker down and create a war room-like mentality at a local level, I'm not sure how you're going to get this done. But um, there we are. Any questions to what you've heard so far from the audience? No? So I'll, 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 I'll skip, on, skip directly to you, Corinne. Private sector. Um, we've had... Quite a few comments you heard from the panel before, quite an enlightened private sector uh, on, on, in the session to, to sessions today. What kind of financial instruments do you think we need um, to scale up the, um, the ambition or to meet the ambition? So maybe, 
Does it work? Yeah. So maybe just to um, explain how we think about sustainable finance. Yes. So for us, it's about um, aligning company strategic ambition and sustainability goals with investors' impact. And we can do it in two ways. Either you focus the financing flows to the means supporting those goals, or you create a link between the financing conditions and the company's performance. The green bonds typically uh, belong to the first category. So maybe just to give you a couple of numbers. Um, year to date, there are 200 billion euros of what we call green, sustainable and social bonds. That's only 7.9% of the bond market, and that's excluding the government bonds, right? Because otherwise you can't even measure the green bond. Um, out of this market, 85% um, is actually green, because I mentioned green, sustainable and social. And you have 65% of the market of corporate is utilities and real estate. And out of this, you have in the top 10, eight utilities and five of them are European and one of them is us. So in a way, my point is, it's too small a market, right? We are not bringing the right people to this market, okay? So why did we do the green bond anyway? Um, we started to 2013, we were actually one of the first uh, corporates to do a scalable green bond. We have 4.5 billion. The reason we did it was um, because we wanted actually to access new investors because we have 50 billion of debt in the market. We are one of the biggest bond issuers. But also because we wanted to put some um, value to what we do in the renewable uh, business. Because with this green bond, we actually invested um, in 25 wind and solar projects and we obviously emitted less CO2. Um, but the issue we face today is that a lot of corporates are not coming to the green bond because it's actually cost a lot of money for the corporates and you don't get any interest to do it. Why is that? Because of the lovely fiduciary duty. Well, I know there are a lot of study about Greenium, but honestly, there are a lot of controversy too about that. So it's not worth the sunk cost for a corporate. I give you an example. With my green bond, I have uh, financed 400 million of hydro modernization. That means 400 certification from Deloitte. That costs a lot of money, actually, in terms of human capital. So I really think that the greenwashing issue plus the human capital involved is not at stake compared to the good we do when we come to the market with green bond. I don't think we are remunerated as much to do good. So I think this is one of the issues, in my view, for the green bond market to not be at scale. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I'm a bit worried about is with the EU taxonomy. Um, that so many experts have been working to eventually said just finance wind and solar as if we didn't know that this was one of the things that we should finance so i think we might end up having something very restrictive mm. just to avoid the greenwashing issue so because of that you end up having new market coming which is what enel has done the sustainability bond there's no more use of proceeds you don't flag the money to a project so it's a real trust issue with the corporate, because in a way, you gave a rendezvous to investors at a date. In the meantime, you could do really bad things, 
but you do meet the target at the date you give to the investors. So it's a real trust issue. Mm. Um, and I think uh, this is a way to bring much more corporates at a bigger scale, but also corporates who do not have so much green investments or do not have such a capital intensive uh, business like utilities or real estate. The other market coming is the transition bonds. And this one is probably the most uh, talked about in the market. And this is to bring brand balance sheets to energy transition. And this is something that has been uh, discussed a lot. We're still waiting for people to come to that market. But as with NL, transition um, sustainability bond, we are seeing investors who don't have green bond uh, pocket that are interested uh, to get access to this kind of, of market. Uh, another thing that we've done is uh, what we call sustainability-linked loan. And that's very uh, interesting. You link uh, the margin you pay to the bank to your um, ESG performance. So either you do it through a rating agency or you do it with your own criteria. And that's very virtuous because the better you are, the less margin you pay to your bank. And it should be normal because you are a less risky company in a way. So that's something which I think should be uh, also a very strong market. And we have five billion of it. And, and we think this is uh, also an interesting way to, to to do more, in a way, with what you have as a sustainability strategy. Mm. Go back to the green bond issue again, in terms of, um, on the one hand, uh, it has a huge potential, yep. if done in the right way. What would you think, what would you like to see specifically done around it, from both a commission point of view, if they, you know, for, and, but also uh, the banker next to you? Well, clearly, I will let you come back, don't worry. <laughs> no, I think clearly the, um, we like the standardization for sure. Everything that brings down cost um, to deliver the green bond in terms of the certification um, and avoiding greenwashing for sure. I think it's a major uh, constraint that a lot of corporates are worried uh, to come to the market because they are worried that it will not be a, a good, uh, uh, there will be in a way bad um, backlash from what they do. Um, I think we need technology neutral. Uh, all decarbonized energy needs to be included. Um, and I think this is something which is much discussed at the EU level as we know. Um, and, uh, and of course, I think we also need to ensure um, that investors' uh, reporting expectations are at the right level too, because you cannot imagine the number of people working in corporates just to do reporting for investors on something that sometimes they don't ever look at. Okay? So there is a balance that needs to be found uh, between investors' expectations and what corporates can deliver, because you cannot justify operational need to work, right? And uh, and I think this is also important if we want the finance department and the sustainability department to motivate new projects within the company, they need to have the ability not to see it as a reporting machine. Sure. But it, it occurs to me I mean, that bonds are not the only financial instrument here that we should be thinking of because there, there is a potential to be much more creative um, with uh, both in terms of what you do with debt and financing per se. Uh, the number of ways, in the way when you think of how the private sector financial markets work, there's a number of options available, but they're not being utilised for this approach. And the other thing that I wanted to just t test you on is that people say that, you know, often you need the private sector to come in in order to kind of lever a better public-private partnership. Um, what's your experience been? Because, I mean, it seems that in, on this, especially on the plans, the national plans, you really need... Uh, the public sector to hold hands with the private sector and civil society to make this work. 
Yeah, I think in, in France and being an 85% state-owned company, <laughs> obviously it's something that we are uh, dealing with um, all the time. I mean, as you know, France also is one of the biggest sovereign green bond uh, issuer. So we have like almost 20 billion. Um, and so there is a link, obviously, between the infrastructure that the government wants to, um, uh, to deploy and uh, us as a big infrastructure developer. But I think what is really working well is um, when you you end up having this partnership in regions where you are closing down assets and you need to create a new you know, a new story for the regions in terms of energy transition. So I give you an example. We have one of our biggest fuel, um, uh, fuel uh, plants that we are dismantling. Uh, obviously, a lot of jobs there. Um, and we basically um, transformed it into a solar farms and into a clean tech valley. So it will be a hydrogen or other new form of um, energy. And this is something that we did in partnership with the region. So this is really, for me, the way we can uh, work together because they need to do their energy transition. They need to have the just transition that we mentioned. Mm. And that needs both the private and the public sector mm. to discuss this plan together and put the money at risk as well. Because when you do this, you, you, know, you don't earn anything. You are taking right? risk, yeah, absolutely. And that just occurs to me, in terms of the fossil uh, um, focused um, countries in the East, let's say, in the main, there's, there surely has to be more creative ways in which you can create financial instruments that aid the transition process, more than what you've just described. But you know, you could actually think more creatively at a national state, that how do you finance, but using a um, ROI that, and a risk profile uh, that is not going to crush the justness of the transition? But that perhaps not an answer for you, but you might want to think about that at some point. Do you want to, come, do you want to respond to that issue? Well, just very briefly, I mean, I, I agree actually with everything Karen has said about, about the challenges facing the green bond market. And, and, um, and obviously, the, there is a need for common standards, common taxonomies. It, it, it'll become quite a political process, as we all know, as to what's in those taxonomies. The only point I would make about the cost of running that, and, and so we've been doing green bonds for about 12, in fact, we were the first ever issuer of green bonds. We've been doing green bonds for about 12 years. I think we've, I think we've a bigger portfolio than any other institution in the world. It is expensive, um, the certification, the reporting, the accreditation, and so on. But finally, in the last two years, we've begun to see the premium on the market, the green bond premium. In other words, our investors are now willing to pay more for our green bonds than our standard bonds. I don't want to exaggerate, it's not huge. At about seven, eight years, it's about seven, eight basis points um, of, 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 a, of a yield difference between the green bonds and the standard bonds. But in the current interest rate environment, that's very interesting. You know, when, 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 you, when we're raising 60 to 70 billion a year, that starts to become significant amounts of money. And the reason why that is, is because they're under huge pressure, the investors, to show they're holding sustainable bonds and green bonds in their portfolios. That is only going to increase with the taxonomy and with the reporting obligations that asset managers and other institutional investors are going to have. So that is now beginning to cover our costs in terms of running green bond programs. And we do think you know, what, what, what we're experiencing will become a trend in the market. So we're quite hopeful that this is exactly what's required, is to get a premium on these bonds that helps fund the cost of the infrastructure. Just on the issue of the eastern countries and, and, and the financial instruments that are required, mm. absolutely. Which is why the union has set up, obviously, the Modernization Fund finance out of the emissions trading system to help blend 
grant aid with debt finance in those countries okay. that are further behind in the energy transition. And, and, and that's obviously something that the DIB is working with the Commission to, uh, to deploy. Great. Maybe one thing I didn't mention, which is still important, on the positive side of the green bond. You create a link with investors that, that you will never have done. So I'll give you an example. Um, AXA, which is an insurance uh, company Indeed. that everybody knows, um, they are selling life insurance products. They struggle to talk to Mr. and Mrs. Smith and explain to them what is behind their life insurance product. We organized for them a roadshow of all the assets that were financed by our green bond, which they bought. It happens that a lot of it um, is hydro. And so they brought their commercial guys to actually touch, literally touch, what they buy through the life insurance product. So you create really a completely different narrative of the finance product as well. And what is interesting is that that means also that le, the end investors, when they know that they are financing renewable energy, which is 10 kilometers away from home, they actually are more resilient to the bad performance of the product. They don't want to sell it because they know this is actually uh, an infrastructure that is close to from home and that is renewable. So I thought that was quite interesting. Thank you. Um, my goodness, we have, we've got so many enlightened private sector people on today. So I wonder if this is turning a tide. Um, but let's move to regulation, <clears throat> shall we? Um, and I regret you, you know, you're president of the Council of the European Energy uh, Regulators. Um, how green is your regulation of energy? Let me try to explain this a bit, um, and I uh, would like to connect uh, to what uh, previously was in the what was said previously in the uh, in the uh, panel uh, in the second panel. The, we have the legislation, and now it is time uh, to implement, and uh, that is mainly the regulator that is uh, uh, implementing. Then, uh, so what I'm referring is, of course, we take uh, as energy regulators, uh, we take the uh, national uh, energy and uh, climate plans as a given, and then we have to see uh, with our regulatory measures. Uh, uh, how this is translated into infrastructure needs, so into, for example, an expansion uh, of the grid uh, to absorb uh, more renewables, uh, but also to look at alternative uh, options, flexibility options, such as storage or other uh, possibilities, uh, to limit uh, the infrastructure uh, needs. Uh, so that's the whole package, and the regulators are usually involved in this uh, with the uh, network development plans. So, of course, the operators uh, provide them, but uh, at least in Germany, uh, the uh, regulator uh, sets the different scenarios uh, for the energy mix on the demand side. So that means that we can uh, include in these uh, network development plans the projections with regard, for example, to the share of renewables, uh, which then uh, is uh, ultimately then translates into how many additional infrastructure uh, do we need, what alternative options uh, are there uh, to deal with the increasing share of renewables as one of the important uh, targets that we have uh, to fulfill. 
And uh, I think on the electricity side, uh, this is uh, well accepted and indeed we have new legislation uh, with the clean energy package which is currently uh, being transposed uh, and uh, where uh, we have now clearly uh, the, the uh, greening of regulation and uh, of the whole energy system as, a, as an objective uh, enshrined in law. Uh, and also uh, we have uh, the consumer becoming more active, which I think is very important uh, for the transition and for the acceptance uh, of uh, the transition of the energy transition and also including, for example, of uh, financing. Uh, because this is the other part that most of the energy regulators do, uh, that they, uh, for example, auction renewable uh, capacity uh, and uh, that is something where, for example, uh, energy communities uh, can bid in and that, that increases the acceptance uh, usually of these new uh, projects uh, and I think that is a, a very uh, important uh, part here. Uh, so the, the uh, regulation is, is becoming uh, greener in that sense from, uh, uh, as well. Uh, and of course we, we have, let's say, the, the traditional dull instruments of uh, tariff regulation uh, which we need to apply to ensure that uh, the additional infrastructure uh, and the efficiently incurred costs are recouped uh, by, uh, by operators or uh, investors in, in this infrastructure. Uh, and that is uh, something that uh, also develops uh, and where it is important for the regulator uh, to, um, uh, to be uh, transparent uh, as well as predictable in order to ensure uh, the, the trust uh, of investors uh, that the regulation is adjusting to the new system uh, and is in fact supporting the transition of the energy system uh, as a whole. So that's what we have already on the electricity side and, and what we currently start uh, also to implement. Uh, we know that uh, the, the gas, that the Commission is uh, envisaging also a gas package or as it is informally called, I think, a decarbonization package. Uh, which means that some of the uh, regulations and the rules that are now in place for the electricity regulation uh, will be mirrored uh, also for the gas regulation. And uh, in fact, uh, CER and ASA uh, will have already uh, consulted upon a paper on how to uh, implement and what to, to observe in uh, the gas uh, side of the new, uh, of the new uh, legislation. Uh, and uh, it is very important here that we say that also for gas we need to make sure that we include uh, green gases and that uh, what does this mean then for the gas infrastructure. Can we use existing gas, gas infrastructure uh, for green gases uh, or do we have stranded investments? Uh, these are all, uh, uh, all ideas that we uh, um, explore in our paper. And the final version of the joint conclusions paper of ACER and the Council of European Energy Regulators will be launched and, uh, in, a, in a public event on the 20th of November here in Brussels, in fact. So uh, go to our website and if you are interested and then you can, you can see it. Uh, final word maybe uh, on where we also see a need uh, or where we think that it is uh, becoming greener is on the distribution level yes. uh, so that the, uh, that the grids also become smarter. 
uh, and that means that we use the tools of digitalization uh, which uh, improve uh, the functionalities of uh, the grid and which uh, then also allow the consumers to actually make use of the new options that they have according uh, to the package, maybe some peer-to-peer -peer trading even, uh, and in general becoming more active, and with this then also reducing their bill, which I think is an element of, uh, again, uh, making sure that uh, no one is left behind and that the transition is also um, supported uh, by energy consumers. And I think that is really a, a change of perspective uh, to a more cons uh, a consumer or customer-centric model away from the, let's say, old-style operator perspective that the regulator uh, had in the past. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a broader ap uh, approach. Uh, and of course, uh, regulation is always uh, linked uh, to ensure that the market uh, works. That is something which we also see in the clean energy package. Thank you for uh, that, because I, I you've, you've kind of preempted a couple of issues I was going to raise with you, but if you could say a little bit more about the consumer side, because, you know, um, regulators are not well known for taking a consumer-led approach. They usually are a kind of a supplier-led approach. But I'm interested to know, because one of the issues is that consumers find it very difficult to navigate the grid in any way, and even if they are, you know, let's say they want to trade, it will be a, it will be a quagmire for many people. What are you going to do to both make the grid perhaps, let's say, not only greener, but more consu consumer friendly? Consumer friendly, yes. So uh, the, the basic idea is indeed uh, that uh, consumers uh, can uh, switch more easily. So as uh, CR, we are publishing a lot uh, uh, to, to, um, uh, to explain to consumers indeed on uh, their rights. Uh, and how they can easily switch, which gives them more, let's say, power to navigate, as you said. Mm -hmm. I think that is the first aspect. And then, according to the new uh, legislation, um, the uh, consumer also in the future has the right uh, to, if, if, if they want, uh, to get a so-called dynamic uh, pricing contract which means that they are, that they are linked uh, to the wholesale uh, trading, to the wholesale prices. Uh, of course, this means that they are also exposed to, let's say, reductions, uh, reductions as well as increase uh, of these prices. But the idea is here that uh, the consumer can more easily uh, adjust uh, and then um, change the behavior in the way that they can use, let's say, uh, more consciously uh, the energy. And this would translate ideally then in a, in a reduced uh, bill. Because what we saw in the past was that wholesale prices were quite low and were depressed, were going down, but these um, reductions of prices did never reach the consumer. Yeah? So there was the, the, the trickling through didn't happen. And we hope that uh, with this instrument um, there, there is a possibility that this becomes more transparent and thus facilitates active participation uh, of uh, consumers. That, of course, then also means, for example, if you have an electric vehicle 
that you decide on when you recharge it, uh, and that then may insert also more stability into the grid. So you see the system uh, is, a, is more of a two-way system rather than the old uh, kind of, of just in one way and um, just looking as the consumer as a, as a sort of rate payer. So mm -hmm. consumer becoming more active in that sense. That's, that's the idea behind, behind it. And of when course does, we need when does all this start happening? Uh, well, the, the, currently the electricity directive uh, is being transposed by member states. Uh, they have, I think, until end of next year. Ooh. So, uh, yeah, it, it takes some time, but some, some elements are already... Do you, do you, are you hopeful this will be available across the piece, across the 27? Yes. Will be by then? Yes, yes. So it will work more efficiently. So the energy market was probably likely to work more effectively than the single market on this occasion. Uh, yes, we hope uh, there are also a, a number of measures uh, to increase cross-border trade because that also should have a net benefit. Absolutely right. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, the in ideally also consumers would be able, uh, let's say, to profit more from these uh, from the internal market. Okay. Uh, and. In some member states, especially in the Nordic, uh, they already have a Nordic market, as far as I understand, and uh, consumers uh, can already um, uh, use uh, dynamic pricing, and I think it is accepted quite to quite a lot, ex uh, uh, to quite an extent, and, and works in, in, this, in the foreseen sense. And we need uh, to, of course, to ensure that then the, the retail markets are also um, uh, well-functioning, yeah? because otherwise uh, consumers will not profit. Thank you very much. Um, I recognize that we've got really techie in the past 20 minutes, both in terms of money and regulation. But are there any uh, questions from the audience before I wrap up? Because we're, we're, we're just on, on time, about to get to time. Ah, we have a question here. Anybody else? No? Okay. Gentleman here at the front. Again, please do introduce yourself. Thank you. Mark Radka from the UN Environment Program. It's a question about green bonds and green finance. Um, arguably, it might be, might be utopian, but we would all look forward to the day when all bonds are green or all finance is green. And I think when you said all EIB lending, Paris compatible. So the question is, should we be worried that, that what makes a green bond attractive depends on the continued existence of a dirty bond or whatever its alternative would be. Is, is it a transitory thing to a different state or are we, we kind of building something up that we're going to live with and by not really thinking through the next step? I'll give it a go. <laughs> Difficult question. Yeah. Um, what's clear is that um, climate is, 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 is I, per, I, I suppose, in a sense, opening up a discussion about the greatest market failure that exists in finance at the moment, in finance investment and, and, and market economics. And until carbon pricing fully captures the externalities associated with the environmental damage caused by the consumption of fossil fuels in particular, Investors are going to want to find some other instruments to distinguish between good investment and bad investment, between investments that, in the absence of full carbon pricing, try to mitigate the effects of, of, um, of, of fossil fuel consumption, or, or try to find uh, other forms of investment that, 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 that aren't subject to those same externalities. One can envisage an era, 
perhaps in the not too distant future, when carbon pricing so fully reflects the externalities associated with climate change that green bonds for climate finance may no longer be so attractive. But then you're, going to, uh, then you're going to look into other externalities and market failures, including other environmental um, uh, damages associated with very, very, various investments. So I think it'll be a catch-up. It'll be a catch-up to try and provide market mechanisms that, that, that make all financing sustainable. But we'll always be trying to catch up because I think the market will always be, you know, I think there's now such a great sense of, of the environment, of environmental crises, not just in climate, but in water, in, in other areas, that I think there's going to be a market for sustainable finance for some time to come. Thank you. Yeah, I think the, um, in a way, the sustainability bond is supposedly um, to help that in the sense that if you do believe that a corporate has a credible carbon neutrality target Paris aligned and their strategy and their sustainability uh, goals are all aligned, then the use of proceeds should not be needed because you should trust that all the money is supposed to reach that goal. But we're not there yet. <laughs> so um, I think one of the interests of the green bond as well is the fact that there's a lot of talk about additionality. When there is pressure, and we all have pressure on our profitability, and I used to be a CFO, and uh, so I was asking my business unit to cut capex sometimes. You don't cut the green bond capex, okay? So the money is there. It's uh, sacré, as we say in French. So you don't touch it. And I think this is a good way to ensure that at least this. Uh, capex are additional and they are being deployed in the bad times. Mm. Great, thank you. Uh, well, that's it, folks. Um, we're just o over time. Um, I hope that you've um, had the opportunity or you feel that we've been able to connect some of the kind of key concerns around this agenda, debate them effectively, um, and think about the change that we need. One of the key messages I think that's come from this discussion um, that hasn't gone away is that um, pace is clearly not there. Uh, we need greater pace. It seems that we have the money, uh, but pace and political will are going to be the key determinants of what happens in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. And it occurs to me that most definitely time is running out. I hope that we don't have um, even worse uh, you know, uh, climate implications next year in the sense that when we think of the temperatures we experienced this year, um, I'm, I hope that we don't have to um, have a titanic moment before we actually act, but let's see. Uh, but we, what we do know, what we do know is that people on the ground, uh, citizens, are asking for more and better. And let's hope that, that that citizen will can really define political action in the next coming months, but also in the term of the new uh, EU mandate. Thank you all very much for your time. Let's thank our speakers in the usual way. And on your way, on your way out, um, I highly commend this document. It's called Vision for Europe. It's our take on uh, what we think the ten, top 10 recommendations should be for the new EU mandate. And we have some very bold um, uh, suggestions on what we might do on climate. So I would urge you to pick up a copy and have a read. Uh, I hope you find it of interest. Thank you all very much.